Exodus chapter 34. With his word, God created the universe, Genesis 1. And with his word, God sustains the universe, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. With his word, God creates life in the heart of the lost soul, Romans 10, 17. And with his word, God sustains that new life in the believer, John 17 and verse 17. So as we put this together, both in the natural realm and in the spiritual realm, life is created and sustained by the Word of God. It is no coincidence then that Adam and Eve, in their original disobedience, dishonored the Word of God. And it's no Coincidence that that disobedience plunged the world into physical and moral catastrophe. God's word is our life. Disobedience to God's word is our ruin. But happily, and that's why we're gathered here today, that ruin is not necessarily the last chapter for us. The storyline of the Bible is rich with the theme of rescue from the ruin that visits those who break God's word. That history of redemption begins in the garden with, fittingly enough, the word of God. Remember what we hear there. Adam, where are you? And what have you done? In the end, the ruined sinner must return to God's word. This is our life. I'm reminded of a course in personal evangelism that I took in Bible college, our instructor required memorization of many, many verses, books full of them, little binders and books I filled with these verses to try to learn all of these verses to evangelize anybody on earth with some verse from the Bible. One really stuck out in my mind and has to this very day because it was so odd. He had us memorize Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1 which says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying. That was it. It was the end of the verse. And I thought, that's a really weird verse for personal evangelism. The only thing I could think is it's short, and it's easy to memorize, and that's, we'll move on to the next verse. I didn't think a whole lot more about it. The word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah, saying. Perhaps because it was odd, that verse lodged in my head and has to this day. But over the years, as I have come to understand the Word of God better and better, I now recognize that simple verse nearly encapsulates the redemptive theme of the Bible. God's Word comes a second time. His Word came to Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed it. But his word came a second time. Where are you? What have you done? And we come today to a rich sounding of this very theme in Exodus chapter 34. We have a God of mercy who brings ruined sinners back to his word. 
We remember the context in chapter 32, and we must bring that in with us here to chapter 34. If you've not been with us through the series or thinking about these matters, in chapter 32 there is a horrifying sin on Israel's part. There's the creation in the absence of God as Moses is with God on Mount Sinai. There is the creation of a golden calf, a manipulation of God's presence through spiritual impatience. Israel comes forward and says, we will worship this calf. Or here is Yahweh, an idol of Yahweh, depending on how we read that text. In any event, it is a false worship, and it ends in gross sensuality, where false worship always does. It ends with Israel violating her covenant with God. She had said, I will honor your word. And now we find her here in Exodus 32 in this horrifying situation of sin. In chapter 33, God proposes to slaughter the nation on the spot. To start things all over with Moses, but he intercedes in behalf of the people. He pleads with God and says, What will happen to your glory in this world if you crush your people whom you have promised to bring into the promised land? And Moses prevails with God. And God grants to Moses in chapter 33 his promise that he will go with the people. He will go in their midst through that entire prayer. Much taking place there, but let us look just at verse 17 of that chapter, chapter 33, as we move into 34. 33, 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. It would appear that God's promise to go with the people is received by Moses, but he desires for there to be something of a down payment. Show me your presence now. Verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. This is referring, of course, to Israel. He will have mercy upon Israel and show her mercies in bringing her to the promised land by dwelling among her. Verse 20, but he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Not in all of my glory, but I will show you my glory. I will allow you to see it and I will proclaim to you truth about my name. It's not just a vision, not just visual, but is also truth about God. Now from that place we move into chapter 34, and we find a revelation of a forgiving God in this place. And of course, this is to be assumed as he protects and delivers Israel from his just wrath. But we find here rich and beautiful words of the forgiving God of Scripture Chapter 34 and verse 1, his word comes again to the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. God apparently provides the first tablets. Moses is going to provide the second ones that he broke. 
uh, for whatever reason, and there might be many, there's much conjecture, but the first tablets bear the law of God and were broken in response to Israel's violation of, of the covenant. But now there's a second set of tablets. and God will mercifully issue His word a second time. So once the two new stone tablets are in hand, God instructs Moses in verse 2, Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. Now this makes sense to those of us that have been working through uh, perhaps the book of uh, Exodus together. Chapter 19, verses 12 through 13, this type of stipulation was set out there. There's to be no animal that comes to the mountain. This is the idea of holiness. This climb is of the same nature then as the first climb. It is a holy convocation with God to receive His Word. No animal is to profane the mountain, and this time no one is to even accompany Moses there. It is a time of great holiness and sanctity. Verse 4, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. We've seen all of this before, but here it is again. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Remember Moses' request there in chapter 33 in verse 18, please show me your glory. And God responds in verse 19 of chapter 33 that He will do just that. Not only a visual display of the glory of God, but a verbal revelation of His glorious nature. And that revelation now follows in verses 6 and 7. We walk on holy ground here. As the Lord passes before Him and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's sit in here for a while. The glory shrouded by the cloud, God's voice reverberates with this glorious self-revelation. Is this the God you know? He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. This is the same word, the same name that is used in chapter 3 as God reveals Himself to Moses. I am the God who is. I am there. I am with you. I am the Lord. One commentator pictures this as something of light passing through a prism. And that light of God's glory passing through this Word now comes out in these various hues of the glory of God. What are those hues? The first is that He is merciful and gracious. He is merciful and gracious. That is, He is a God who spares sinners the judgment they deserve. And He pours out His blessing upon sinners who do not deserve it. He is a God who is slow to anger. This means that He is not a God who cannot wait to punish the lawbreaker. But He is a God who is patient with sinners. Praise His name. 
He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is loyal to his people. These Hebrew terms are often used in covenantal language. That is, God is steadfastly loyal to his people, meeting them at every turn with love and fidelity. We bring him praise. Verse 7, he is keeping steadfast love for thousands. That is, his loyal love persists through thousands of generations, seems to be the idea contextually in the book of Exodus. He is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The three basic words for sin in the Hebrew Bible, seemingly to say he covers it all. He's a God who forgives all kinds of sins. Praise his name. But lest we get the idea that God's forgiveness is an easy score, that God's patience and leniency are something you can take for granted, he hastens to remind Moses at the end of verse 7 that he by no means clears the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, and simply taken, we don't read too much into that, but simply the idea that God judges sin. There are consequences for sin. He's not a God who's just easy to escape. The God of mercy and long-suffering patience is also a God of justice. He will never sweep sin under the carpet. And the question comes here, there's something of tension here, isn't there? This God of patient mercy and forgiveness who doesn't clear the unrighteous. He doesn't just wipe away sin. How does this work? How can he be forgiving and at the same time just? In one sense, I think the sacrificial system that is to come is a partial answer to that tension but not fully satisfying, for we have animals dying in the place of sinners. So in one sense, there is something of an answer in the Old Testament. But in another sense, this question is never answered in the Old Testament. God is a forgiving God. God is a just God. We, of course, understand that the answer to this tension is not relieved until Jesus Christ appears. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the justice of God and the forgiving nature of God come down upon the head of Jesus. It is amazing grace that will resolve this tension. But this is our God, verses 6 and 7. And so, as Moses responds so appropriately, verse 8, he bows his head toward the earth and he worships. He worships. What amazement there is here as we look at chapter 33 and verse 3. I will not go among you. But as Moses pleads with God, God now reveals his nature, and it is a nature of forgiveness, a nature of grace, a nature of patience. And the one who has said in his wrath, I will not go, now says, I will go. And here is who I am. God says he will not go, lest he destroy the people in his holy wrath. Now Moses, in a sense, plays God against himself. If 
if I can use that term, in light of the revelation that he has just received, that God is a forgiving and merciful and gracious God, now Moses goes to work for the people again. And he says, verse 9, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In other words, now it is because Israel is sinful that Moses argues God must come with them. Interesting, isn't it? God's saying, I can't go with them because they're sinful. I will destroy them in my wrath. Now Moses says, that's exactly why you must come with us. We need your holy, protecting grace. We need your steadfast, loyal love among us. Come with us. Dwell among us. You're a God of mercy. You have revealed it to us. Come with us. I wonder, as we see Moses worshiping and pleading in prayer with God, is this your vision of God? Do you know Him in this way? I think we've got to start, certainly, if we're honest with this text, by saying that God is a God of judgment. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of perfect justice who holds the guilty accountable for their sin. We just have to cross Exodus chapter 32 and 33 right out of the Bible if we're not going to see that. He is a God of holy anger. And we must come to terms with the reality of this revelation of God and tremble before Him. And I think that the more we tremble, the more we sense the fire of God's holy anger against sin, the more we are capable of appreciating the revelation that this same God is a God of mercy and fidelity and patience and steadfast love and forgiving grace. We are suffering as a people in this nation, in the West, as the church has downplayed the judging power of God and His holiness, we are suffering from a lack of the greatness of His mercy. We don't understand it. It's a cheap grace that has visited us. The only answer is to see God for who He truly is. And the answer is for us to gather on the Lord's day in this place and to lift up in worship the name of a God of grace and mercy who is a God of judgment. Knowing then that this is who God is, Israel's restoration will involve a return to what? It will involve a return to the Word. In Exodus chapter 20, there are to be no idols. In Exodus chapter 32, there's an idol. And gross infidelity to God. Where will it end? Because there is a merciful and gracious and steadfastly loving God, it will end by coming back to the Word. And so we have, beginning at verse 10, the renewal of this holy covenant. A renewal of what has already been established. We're just coming right back to what we've already considered, what Israel has already agreed to obey. We come back to a renewal of this holy covenant. Verse 10, and he said, Behold, I am making a covenant 
The critics of Scripture have a heyday on that one. This is some other covenant, some other person bringing together some other idea, and they just throw the two ideas together. It is a renewal of the covenant. That's all it is. And you will see that as we go through the words. They're all the words that have already been established in the previous covenant. It's a renewal. Before all your people, verse 10, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is unmitigated grace. God would be entirely just to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, but now he paints in glowing terms his plan to bless her and to distinguish her as his own. The God who created the marvels of the universe by his word. There's very creative language here, isn't there? Even that word created, the Hebrew word used in Genesis chapter 1 of creation. I will create among you. I will be doing a new work. Israel is, in a sense, a new creation of God, a new work of God in the world. And he will do wonders through Israel as he takes them on their journey to the conquest of the land. Verse 11, observe then, he says, what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. As Israel returns to God's word, God will return to his promise to give Palestine to her as a possession, and one nation after another will fall before the power of God. So take care, verse 12, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. That is, Israel is to return to God's law, and that means she will guard assiduously against idolatry. There will be people in Canaan who will welcome you. You're coming in as conquerors. But don't get the idea that everybody's just going to run away or that this conquest is going to take place on one afternoon. It will be a long campaign. And during that campaign, there will be people who cozy up to you and want to show you their ways and their worship. You must resist. You are God's holy people. Rather than join the false religions of the present inhabitants of Canaan, verse 13, this is what I want you to do. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. The asherim, probably sacred poles commonly erected near the altars of Baal. We don't know exactly what they look like or their form, but they were not to be admired, much less revered. In fact, they were to be cut right down to the ground. Why? Verse 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. As any loving father, he is jealous for the affections of his people. You will not call someone else your father. You will not worship someone else but the true God of creation. And so Israel is to destroy the Asherim and to honor the jealousy, the just and pure jealousy of God that forbids false worship because of his love for his people. Verse 15, lest further you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land 
And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. God is jealous for the holiness and the loyalty of his people. And so he strictly forbids communion with and marriage to anyone who is not loyal to him. Those of you who are on the front side of marriage, children, young people, single adults, hear the word of the Lord. God wants us to be yoked with no one who is not loyal to him. And his word has not changed. The moral center of God's word is that we would be a holy people. Because God is holy. You must be careful of this world into which you walk. There are ideas and there are people who will link themselves to you. It will be very natural for you to follow their ways. It will be very natural for you to find communion with them. It will be even very natural for you to intermarry. You must remember that I am to you not a God only of judgment. I am to you a God of mercy. I have bought you. You're mine. Do not link up with someone who does not love me and keep my commandments. God continues then to renew this covenant with Israel. We find again very familiar territory. Verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Well, that's obviously referring to what? It's going right back to Exodus chapter 32. Don't do it again. The word of the Lord has come a second time saying, no idols. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. I think that's referring back to chapter 32 as well. They came up with their own festival. No, it's the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. Remember, I delivered you from Egypt. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. This is your festival. This is what you are to remember. The deliverance that I have wrought with Israel, this festival commemorating her exodus and connected directly to the exodus is the redemption of the firstborn. Verse 19, all that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty-handed. This is familiar territory. It's a little confusing if you pick the Bible up and crack it open right there. But this is familiar territory to it. This is all part of the covenant. It's all part of that continual reminder to Israel that she's God's people. The redemption of the firstborn, everything that opens the womb. The firstborn child, the firstborn of sheep, the firstborn of goats, the firstborn of cows, all of this. We're to remember that we have been delivered from Egypt by our merciful God. In verse 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Notice what he says there, verse 21. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. God hallowed the seventh day. 
Even at the busiest times of the year, the Israelites were to rest on Sabbath, setting aside all work to commune uniquely with God. It was a way of saying she was his people, and she was to focus upon his grace in her life. Verse 22, You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. These three festivals, all males are to go to Jerusalem. God knows eventually that's what it will become. And they are to observe these festivals to the Lord annually. Now there's a fear with that. You go away for several days to make this journey to Jerusalem and you have land back there that could very easily be captured by somebody with greedy eyes. Won't happen, says God. I will protect you in such a unique way that you will be able to go to these festivals and your land will not be taken. No one will cast covetous eyes upon it. This is the requirement for Israel. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice, verse 25, with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. Told him this before, just renewing the covenant, coming back to his word. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Probably a pagan practice. We're a little bit nebulous on what actually is taking place there, but all of this just going back to these regulations. And all of this will be written down. Verse 27, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Well, that's obviously a myth. Moses going 40 days without water. You can possibly make it without food, but not water. I don't think it's a myth. I think he's in the presence of the true God. And when we are glorified and in the presence of God, we will not have to eat and drink. Apparently, we will have the joy of doing so. But when you're in the presence of God, He sustains your life. Not food and not water. God. Moses is there. He's about as close to heaven as you can get right here on this mountain. And he doesn't need food or water. The life of God is flowing to him as God converses with him. So don't try this at home. You're not on Mount Sinai. We can't make it 40 days without water. We can't make it more than three, if I understand right. But Moses could because he's in the presence of God. And what is important here is that he writes down the words of God again. The tablets, apparently God writing on them, Deuteronomy chapter 10, writing on them and Moses writing down other ideas here so that there are two documents in a sense. There is the law, the Decalogue, the ten words of God, and there is the book of the covenant which is reaffirmed here in this place. Now, as we look at this text, this narrative of God's returning His people to His Word, I think that there may be some among us who do not know Christ as Savior. 
And I think what you've got to take home from this, if you know who you are, what you've got to take home from this is the second part of verse 7. That God by no means clears the guilty. This is who God is. And I think you should take home with you as well the whole theme throughout this section of idolatry. There is in our world, not, there aren't gods set up on shelves so much. We park them in garages on four wheels. And we sit them on a foundation. And we enjoy them throughout the world. And we enjoy them in the face of our own children and our own people. And all kinds of things that we set up as rivals to God. You were created to find your joy in God alone. Any other path is insanity. Any other path will lead in destruction. God is your treasure. You've got to come to Him and be reconciled to Him. He's a God of judgment for those who disobey His word and worship idols. If you do not know Christ as Savior, that's you. You're an idolater. I say that with respect, but I say that as warning. God does not tolerate idolaters. But I come also with a word of grace and joy, and that's that He is a forgiving God. He is a God who rescues sinners from their sin. He's a God who will send His word to you again. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the penalty of sin, you can come to find the forgiveness of your sin. He bore the cost of your sin. And as you come to saving faith and confidence in His saving grace and resurrection, forgiveness is provided. But you must come His way, and He must bring you there. Follow Him in faith. Be reconciled to God. For those of us who have come to that saving faith in Christ and realized that He has given His life for us, our response is to be what Moses was, and that is worship. Can you worship now where you are? In the quiet of our hearts, let's consider again verse 6. Yahweh. Yahweh, a great I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. May we praise God for His abundant grace. And I think, Christian, for those of you that know Christ as Savior, that He has rescued and given life to you, I think that one of the essential keys of vibrancy and joy in the Christian life is to never lose the wonder of God's forgiving grace. I talk as a pastor often to people with cold hearts. And often some form of the question comes, how do I develop a vibrancy for God? And I often find myself coming back here to this place. We can never lose the wonder of God's grace. 
We need to be aware in our minds that over and over and over again we violate the Word of God. In every day of our lives, He is fully just to squash us where we are. To take us out because of our sin. There is nothing that secures me against the just anger and condemnation of God except for one thing, and that is His mercy. Can you sing, not ritualistically, but with reality in your soul, amazing grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We can never lose the wonder of His amazing grace. But is that it? Do we just bask in the forgiveness of God and go on living however we choose from that place? And it really keeps grace fresh, doesn't it? I just continue to live in sin and I'm continually awed by the fact that God extends His mercy and His grace to me. And so, through sin, grace abounds. But we know better, don't we? The revelation of God's merciful nature is not to encourage us to continue in our sin. It is to motivate us to live a life of holiness. You see that in God's counsel here to Israel. God will forgive any sin. And I hope I don't in one sense. In another sense, if you're here, I hope I do say to you, anyone who is thinking, but not my sin. If you're here and you're thinking in those terms, be encouraged. God can forgive any sin. Where there is repentance, where there is a desire to turn from sin and embrace His forgiveness, He will forgive any sin. We can have confidence in His nature as it is revealed here. However, The God who forgives any sin is also the God who thereby restores us to a place of joyful obedience to His Word. There is a place where repentance is an evidence that we have not sinned against the Spirit of God and have come to that place where no forgiveness is any longer available. It is repentance that indicates that our sins can be forgiven. And those sins forgiven are intended to bring us back to obedience to His Word. We're going to come right back there every time. At the end of the day, we must return to His Word. We could look at Exodus 34, and some scholars do, and just say this is just a bunch of repetition. There's really nothing new in this chapter, hardly at all other than the revelation of God's grace and mercy, but all that follows, verses 10 and following, this is just all old stuff, exactly. And when we sin against God and we repent of our sin and He brings us back to Himself and fellowship, where will He bring us? Back to His Word. We'll come right back to the Word of God that we violated. A renewal of responsibility to obey what God has said. And so if I talk with some If you're here today and you're walking in sin, there's a tremendous struggle with sin in your life right now. You know what the Spirit is saying to you. You know what it is. 
Let me say to you, the only answer is to come back to the Word. You're going to have to come back to that standard in the end, so come now. Come back to it. Repent, seek the forgiveness of God, and come back to the word that you've broken and honor it. There are believers who, at least in professing faith, have ongoing shame and discouragement over past sins. Perhaps you struggle with that. There are things that you have done that will leave you forever humble. But they're leaving you also forever filled with shame and discouragement. No, I think the answer to that, of course, is to see the grace of our loving God. And to know that His mercy forgives all sins. But I think as well, along with that, let me just emphasize that here today. What must displace that shame and discouragement is holiness of life. Sometimes we remain in our shame and our discouragement because we've not really left our sin behind. But as a holy life, a distinctive life unto God that is following in obedience to Him, replaces that sin, the grace of God becomes more sweet. The humility of soul becomes more pure. And my joy becomes richer, and the shame fades into the past. Perhaps God is calling to you today, where are you? We have in this passage a word of grace, but we have got to come back to His word. We've got to come back and hear His word a second time saying, and obey it. Let's bow for prayer.